there doesn't seem to be a pride in, in doing a good job and in treating people right. That's the biggest hurdle, and it's almost impossible to explain, and it's certainly very hard to legislate around. It's like when you call an elected official and you say, there's a project in your district that was going to build middle-class housing, and the price for a home was going to be 300000 and it's been going on for 26 years. And by the way, now for its pencil, those homes have got to be a million six. Wow. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? Like, are you upset? Are you mad? And when you call the bureaucrats in charge and you say, hey, look at these poor people, they've been put through this, right? And there's a lack of pride. There's a lack of caring and doing a right job. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today, we're joined by one of our uh, favorite guests, Mike Gatto. Mike, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here on a rainy election day here in Los Angeles. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a rainy election day. Uh, you know, they're saying turnout's low. You know, how, how was it at the polls in Los Angeles this morning? What are you guys seeing out there? You know, we're seeing for sure slightly depressed turnout due to the rain. Um, but the key thing for everybody who, you know, prides themselves in being an election nerd, as I certainly do, is what does this do for the races, right? Traditionally, low turnout on election day really hurt Democrats. Right. But as several people have explained to me on Twitter and other places, uh, the dynamic has changed since Donald Trump told Republicans that they can't count on a vote by mail. Uh, the election day turnout has been disproportionately Republican. And so it remains to be seen whether the, whether the rain will end up hurting Republican and uh, center right leaning candidates. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting here. Here we are, uh, four years since you know Gavin Newsom took over as, as governor, and you know when he took over in 2016, his big you know talking point was housing. Right, he wanted to do uh, was it 500,000 homes per year. Do you recall that, Mike? It was a large figure. Yeah, it was it was really big and, and fair to say that, you know, it it hasn't happened. Right. And in fact, you know, uh, you know, we might be even more behind in housing now than we were four years ago. Kind of can you you know, you were always on top of this. I remember in 2019, you started talking about like, man, we're going to look at these housing prices. Things are getting crazy, uh, you know, and it's gotten even crazier and crazier in these last two years. Kind of what is the state of housing right now in, in L.A. and especially, you know, in California, which is a kind of a reflection. Sure. So to use a very awful adjective, but one that really applies here, you can say that the state of housing is deplorable. It is, um, it's really bad. It takes way too long to construct new housing. Um, I have a good friend who is entering year 26 of a housing development in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, for those of you who did a double take, that, that is 2-6. Um, the amount of red tape bureaucracy um, you know, not just CEQA and state laws, but local laws and local stuff. It's really awful. And, um, you know, I do get a little bit upset when governors talk about this and don't come through, because you could argue that in the last, you know, eight years, 10 years here in California, that the two most powerful politicians who have been powerful beyond like what anybody could imagine have been have been Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom. Right. Jerry Brown, you know, nobody with the last name Brown ever lost a Democratic primary in their lives. Um, he he could really do whatever he wanted. He had all the campaign cash he wanted. You could argue the same is applied with Mr. Newsom. Yes, he's faced a recall. Uh, yes, he's got higher ambitions. But, you know, he's also been afforded with tremendous powers during the pandemic. 
he probably could have done something more on housing. And I think objectively, even those of us who consider him a friend, we have to say that he hasn't done what he promised on housing. It seems like such a, you know, a complicated factor because, you know, it, I think housing prices have literally like doubled uh, in the last four years. Is that what you're seeing around where you are? Yep, we saw a doubling of housing prices in every boom. Um, I think uh, the boom, if you want to go way back in 1989, they had boomed from the last trough. Uh, they they then peaked. They they then hit the bottom, rock bottom in '96, and then they started this slow ascent. Where you know by 2006, they had doubled from where they had been just 10 years before. This boom seemed like it happened faster. You know, we had the absolute low in 2012, 2013. Great time to buy a house then. But then you had this rocketing, this real fast uh, rise that was magnified by the pandemic as people sought refuge in their you know, suburban homes. And because of that, I mean, housing prices, as you noted, Jarrett, I mean, they have been crazy the last couple of years. And I think we're well due for a correction. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, just here in Sacramento, you saw like, you know, it'd be rare to see a million dollar home 10 years ago. It'd be like a really nice home. And now those homes are going for three to $4 million. I, I can't yep. imagine what homes are going for in LA. Uh, mm. You know, it, it's, it's affordability, you know, and a lot of people can't afford to buy a home anymore. Um, and kind of, how do you, I guess, how do you see this unfolding and, and what does new construction and, and building homes, I guess, do for affordability? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of demagoguing on this. And I'll say from the outset, I'm someone who supports housing. And that is an issue that you're increasingly seeing become part of the discussions. They'll say, how are you on housing, right? Just like, how are you on choice or any of the other issues? But I do think that there's a lot of demagoguing on this, Jarrett. And it comes from both the pro-housing people and the people who, who argue the opposite. Uh, in terms of uh, a couple of things that we should get out, get out there right from the outset, uh, the American people right now, and this is true in California and Florida and everywhere in between, they have more square footage for their homes than they have ever had. Uh, back in like the 1950s, you were considered fantastically wealthy if you had a 2,400 square foot house, right? And now it's like people look at that like, oh, 2,400 square feet, like what right. is that, right? Uh, now I forget what the average size of new home construction is, but it's well over 3,000 square foot. So that's one premise that we have a lot more square footage. Secondly, the number of occupants per dwelling has dramatically decreased. I mean, dramatically, like it's gone from something like an average of four to an average of like two, and in some counties, 1.5, right? So that's another thing, believe it or not, and there's an exception to this, but density has dramatically decreased. And then the third principle is that the number of single households has dramatically increased. So when people say like, well, what's the, what's the low hanging fruit? Well, the low hanging fruit is to get a roommate. Right? Right. That's the low hanging fruit. Um, and, and people are like, well, how do you know so much about it? Well, well, aside from caring about the issue, I'll tell you a little personal anecdote. Um, I was tracing my ancestry. I was doing, you know, all this genealogy stuff a couple of years ago. And part of it, you know, is looking at old census records. They're very valuable for looking at like where your ancestors were at a given time. And the U.S. Census releases them 50 years after the fact. They're private until then, but 50 years after the fact, they release them. And I was looking at these old census records in my family and other families, and I was looking at each house. And the houses, you know, you, you'd see things on a street, on a middle class street in Los Angeles that were like, you know, family of seven plus two borders. That's what they call them, borders. And the reality is you had families in these really small houses who are renting rooms to bachelor workmen. And on top of that, had like seven kids in the rest of the house. 
Right. And that's how life was, right? And so, you know, you could argue that if more people were willing to live like that again, which I I can't imagine doing, right. but that it would take care of a lot of the issues. But no, everybody wants all single men. I'm not a single man anymore, but I used to be. And all single men, right? They want their really cool condo in a really cool neighborhood. And they're going to live in, you know, 2,000 square feet by themselves, right? And so that is one thing to just get out there when we talk about the mythology of housing. But on the other end of the spectrum, there have not been enough new housing starts. And of course, that is just supply and demand. You, as a population grows, you need more units coming to the market. If you don't get those new units, then the price of the existing ones are going to go up. It's that simple. And then you add a dollop of, you know, easy money policies and um, lending being, you know, just 2.9% as it was at the beginning of this year, right. and house prices are going to be extremely high. You know, it's interesting, as, as you noted, there's, there's, I guess, so many things in our control and so many things out of our control, right? We can't control the Federal Reserve, we can't control interest rates, uh, things like that. But, you know, over the past four years, it, it seems like, you know, we've talked about a lot of bills, talking about density, duplexes, triplexes, things like that. What What is some of the things we can control that, that we've done or, or need to do that we haven't done? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, there was a bill by Scott Wiener. I forget the number. You might remember it off the top of your head. That was the most controversial housing bill in, in generations. And it didn't yeah. pass. This was not part of the group that passed in recent years. This was a few years back before the pandemic, and it didn't pass. And that was the one where he basically wanted to give, you know, basically unlimited height restrictions or greatly, greatly extend the height restrictions and the density allowed in places by transit stops. And of course, he defined transit stops as, you know, any place where within 150 feet of a bus stop and people freaked out. They said, Oh my God, like what, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, I believe that that bill was onto something. I believe it was onto a very, very good principle, but I also believed it was done wrong. And I told the proponents, I told the bill sponsors of that when they asked me for my opinion before they went out with their bill package that year, I said, you have to remember that California is a big state. We are places where we're in desperate need of density, like Los Angeles and San Jose. And then we're in places where, you know, if you've got an acre and a half and the two houses touch each other, you don't want a duplex being built right there. I mean, you right. got an acre and a half, right? And that's why you moved there. I said, so first of all, you need to have urban and rural differences. You need to say that these things are only applicable to cities with a certain size population. Number two, rather than making it every transit stop, which essentially makes transit planners into planning planners, where someone can assign a bus stop in one neighborhood and they could make their friends wealthy by building high rises, you should just say, you know, on any like seven lane street or six lane, you know, those big boulevards, we have them in Sacramento, we have them in Los Angeles, right. they're in San Jose, they're in Oakland, any gigantic boulevard with this much traffic and, and a train stop, a legitimate train stop close by, then sky's the limit, build as high as you want, let's build high rises where people want them in the dense urban corridors and where there's genuine transit options, not buses, but, you know, subways and BART and things like that, that people genuinely ride. And I think had they done that, it probably would have passed and it probably would have done a whole lot of good. You know, it's interesting. You know, I saw this on, on Twitter the other day. It was like, you know, people, you know, feel like we all have a God-given right to buy a home in, on the beach in Santa Monica. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah. is is that what we're talking about? Is that is that what, it, you know, is going to solve this issue if we build high rises near the water where everyone wants to live? Yes and no. I mean, you know, those high rises will be very expensive if they're built in trendy areas, but there's a whole lot of non-trendy areas too in cities. Um, I don't know how familiar all of your, your, your viewership is with Los Angeles, but you know, there's, there's great 
differences in neighborhoods, but there's still a lot of places that are really transit rich that people would live in if there was a lot of um, affordable high rise units. Uh, one example is Koreatown. You know, I used to work downtown before I got elected office and I practiced law. And Koreatown is such a, and Pico Union, they are such convenient commutes to downtown. And I think, you know, because those are big, big, huge corridors, people can't really complain about the density. And you'd really get a lot of the young workforce who want to live in an urban environment. There are parts of Koreatown that look very much like New York City. They look like Manhattan. They look like Tokyo. They look like Seoul. And people like that. They like right. that in living. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if, you know, building uh, $3 million luxury condos on the beach are going to solve the problem. But mm -hmm. I'm to the point where, you know, I'll take any addition to the housing supply, whatever it is, because it'll relieve something somewhere sometime. Right. Um you know, you also, yeah, as you said, uh, work as an attorney, right? You do land use stuff as kind of in your in your day to day practice, things that you're working on. Kind of what what are some of the hurdles you see kind of daily, and you know what in kind of you know your former you know act as a lawmaker. Like what what do you think are are some of the things that could change? You know, and speed up the bureaucracy, speed up things so things don't take 26 years to get approved. Yeah. So the the biggest issue that I see in our society is something that has really doomed other societies, right? It's so easy for us to recognize it when we're reading about another society. Um, when, when you read about, you know, the corruption in a place like Bangladesh, right? That somebody needs to be a friend of somebody to get something done, or somebody needs to get paid off in the far extreme to get something done. Or you read about places like Italy, where, where my ancestry is from, and you read about how there's a general bureaucratic lackadaisical attitude towards getting stuff done. Um, I have seen that infect the United States and certainly the California and the Southern California bureaucracy as well. And there doesn't seem to be a pride in, you know, in doing a good job and in treating people right. Um, that's the biggest hurdle. And it's almost impossible to explain. And it's certainly very hard to legislate around. But, you know, it's like when you call an elected official and you say, hey, there's a project in your district that was going to build middle class housing. And that the price for a home was going to be 300000 And uh, it's been going on for 26 years. And by the way, now for its pencil, those homes have got to be a million six. Wow. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? Like, like are you upset? Like, are you mad? And when you when you call the, the bureaucrats in charge and you say, hey, you know, the, look at these poor people. They've been put through this, right? And there's there's a lack of pride. There's a lack of caring and doing a right job by whoever it is, whether it's mom and pop who just want the permit to build a taller picket fence, or whether it's a big developer, we've got to deliver better services and we've got to be offended and angered when we are not delivering things in a fast manner. Yeah. You know, you, you tweeted something pretty, pretty cool and special today. I call it the kind of the seven degrees of, of Mike Gatto uh, and how, you know, we're all connected in some way, kind of about a, a, a property in, in Malibu. Can you kind of share for our listeners that story? Oh my gosh. I don't know how much time we have. I will try to make it as, as, uh, as fast as possible. So there was a guy who um, he and his brother were uh, fought in World War II, and uh, they both had ties to this new wonderful Air Force or you know Navy Navy aviator industry. When they came back from the war, they decided they were going to start an aerospace company. Um, they founded an aerospace company. It was wildly successful. They created a print a plane called the Pregnant Guppy, and this was a transport plane for the military. It ended up carrying parts of the Apollo space program. Guy made millions of dollars. Uh, this is in the fifties and sixties. He had a dad like Scarlett O'Hara and his dad or his folks said, you know, the land, buy some land. You got to diversify. Right. 
right? So he went out and he started buying land. He bought acres and acres in Glendale. Um, he bought acres in Sunland, which is part of the city of Los Angeles. He traded dictators in Venezuela plains for rainforest. He had like almost a million acres of rainforest in South America. He, he, uh, he bought this huge pad with a mansion on it in Beverly Hills, which was still an up and coming city. And the most key purchase that he made, and the one that's the part of our story here is he got 1,200 acres of beachfront property in this crazy faraway community that nobody wanted to live in at the time. And that right. community is called Malibu. So you fast forward years and years later, he did not have children. Uh, at the time of his death, he was dating this very nice lady and he had a brother. Those were his heirs. And his brother, when he died, this, these are the allegations, and these are in court documents as well. The allegation is that his brother hid from the girlfriend the fact that she was supposed to inherit many of these properties. So they went through litigation. And by the way, the brother, the brother, we'll, we'll get to some of the other things that the brother did, but the brother hired legit mobsters. I mean, you know, not out of the movies. I mean, these were legit Italian organized crime right. figures to hold guns to people's heads and say, you're going to sign this deed or do this or forge deeds. That's the allegation. So anyway, this goes through 13 years of litigation, the estate, 13 years. It goes up to the California Supreme Court. And when all is said and done, the California Supreme Court basically rules that the guy who had bought the property at a tax sale, yes, he was the owner of record, but the, the elderly girlfriend, who's now elderly, um, she's in her 80s, that she has this huge lien. You can think of it as a first mortgage on the properties and that right. she essentially owns them in that way. So make a long story short, the, um, by some weird, strange coincidence, I knew every single person that was involved with the transaction, except, except for the mobster. But the mobster went by the name of Mike Gatto. Right. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing. So I had these bizarre connections with everybody involved. It was really, really strange. I mean, I knew the lawyers and I knew the guy who owned the property and I knew that, you know, it was really weird. It was, it was just bizarre. But make a long story short, just, you know, the, the, the elderly ex-girlfriend, she decided that she wanted to do something great with this property. She decided that she wanted to turn it over to this, the people of the state of California. And she did. After five years of working on it, five years for, for all the people who worked on it, and in her case, 18 years of litigation, just the other day, finally, the property was handed over to the Trust for Public Land. And this is going to be a park. Think about that 1200 acre park Amazing. in Malibu, five miles of pristine coastline. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And I hope all of you will, will join me in visiting it someday soon. Yeah, that's like over a billion dollars easy. I'd imagine oh, it's, Maybe I mean, two. some of it, some of it would be a little hard to develop, but right. gosh, it is beautiful. I mean, it is so beautiful and uh, you know, what a great legacy to leave. What a great legacy. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, kind of uh, turning to something, you know, we've talked about homes and housing and, and something that you've always been kind of talking about on the forefront of those without housing, the homeless. Uh, kind of wh what have you seen lately in the homeless front and kind of, you know, I know you've offered solutions in, 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 you know, in the past and, you know, we've are kind of on our way of maybe adopting some of those, but kind of what do you think it is the way to solve the homeless issue here in the state? Yeah. So the way to solve the homeless issue, I usually jump right to it and I, I get right into it, but I found that it's better to talk with people in sort of a Socratic fashion, you know, and, and I've had this discussion with so many elected officials, right? You'll talk to a city elected official and you'll say, Hey, like what's stopping you from, from enforcing the laws or this or that. And they say, Boise, Boise, you know, there's this ninth circuit decision that applies to the Western United States that says that 
Basically, you can't criminalize people who don't have a home. Totally agree with that. If somebody doesn't have a home, you can't say that they can't camp on the streets. That's what the Boise decision says. And so cities have tried to respond by saying, well, we're going to then build all this housing at a cost of between $700,000 and $1 million a unit for the homeless. And then we're going to say, well, now we've got the housing. You've got to go into it. Please, pretty please go. Right. But the reality is that, you know, um, you know, I, I always start with a series of questions. Well, first of all, you know, I, I always ask, you know, and I'll ask this to the reader or to your listeners. And I ask this to elected officials. How many homeless people have you talked to? How many have you had a conversation with? Because there is a group of homeless people. There's a, people become homeless for a variety of reasons. There's a cohort of homeless people. For example, if there's an LGBT youth who got kicked out by his father because his father was horrendously prejudiced, if there was a spouse who was battered by his or her spouse and they left a bad situation, you can have a conversation with them and you can say, hey, there's housing available here. This is where you go. Let me take you there. We'll get you off the streets. But for the 70 or 80% of the homeless that don't fit in those categories, for those who are struggling with addiction, for those who are struggling with mental illness, and you go to them and you say, have you availed yourselves of our wonderful housing options? And they look at you and they say, I am Buddha. Yeah, you know, you're, you're really not going to have luck with that approach. Right. And then you add, when you talk with the public and you say, well, what bothers you? And, and you get right down to it. Most of the public will say what really bothers them are what people call the chronically homeless. These are the people who again and again are on the streets and they're making a disruption. They are fornicating naked at the post office, which my wife saw recently. Uh, they are, uh, you know, waving a bat as they walk down the street. Um, in, in my old neighborhood in Hollywood, there is a guy who used to chase women in the neighborhood with a machete, right? And the, and the cop's attitude was, well, has he attacked anybody yet? No, we can't bring him in, right? The chronically homeless are the ones that, that people are most concerned with. So you get right down to it and you say, all right, well, so you've got this, this decision that says you can't put people in, in jail for just being homeless. But when you talk to them, they don't want to go. So how do you get them off the streets? And for me, and this is where I go back to day one of the first day of law school, there is one circumstance where the government has an absolute right to do just about anything to you against your control. They can take you and make you put your hands behind your back. They can take you to another place and then they can sentence you and they can demand that you do something, go to rehab or do whatever. And that's if you break the law. And so I always ask people, are there homeless people breaking the law? I don't want to criminalize people who are homeless just because they're homeless. But if someone is, you know, relieving himself in a subway, if someone is waving a machete around, if someone is waving a baseball bat, if someone is, you know, pounding on cars as they drive by, aren't those violations of the law? Would you be arrested if you did it? If you went and had sex in a post office parking lot, would you be arrested? Would you have to register as a sex offender? Right. And then at this moment, light bulbs start going in people's heads. We can control the issues that most people have with the chronically homeless if we only enforce the law. But I don't want to throw them in jail. That's not it. And people, oh, you right. well, I don't want to throw them. In. I want to get them help. I submit it is not humane to leave them on the streets. What would be more humane would be to take them into the system. It's the only time we can do it against someone's will and say, hey, you know, you were you were caught fornicating on the subway or you were waving a machete, like what's ailing you, brother? What do you need? What do you need? And we'll put them in front of a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And if the answer is that they need medication or if they need supervision, we need to give it to them. We need to sentence them to that. And if they need rehab, we need to sentence them to rehab. 
That's the only way we'll make a difference. I feel really strongly about this. I'm glad that Gavin Newsom has come around to part of this. He, he adopted the homeless court proposal that I put forth in 2019. But I think we need to go further. I think we need to uh, we need to go a little bit further. That's the only way it's going to get solved. So yeah, basically, you know, they, they've come up with the care courts, but I guess, you know, what is that step further? And, and is that kind of building kind of, I guess, facilities where these people can be, you know, sentenced to and kind of rehabilitated? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that we have a good number of mental hospitals, despite what people think. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, Reagan closed mental. Reagan was governor before you or I were born. Right. It's not Reagan anymore, <laughs> right? We built a lot of mental hospitals and we actually have pretty decent facilities out there. Rehab facilities, you know, I don't know if we have enough. I'm sure we could convert certain state facilities into rehab facilities. But I think the key thing would be really, you know, changing state law to offer funding and change the rules that apply to police forces. I, again, don't want to criminalize it. I don't want to scare people. I don't want to escalate a situation. I've even said that I don't think police should be arresting folks that that fit in these categories. We should have special strike teams paid for by the state that are sworn peace officers, so they have the authority to do it, but they should be specially trained, humane, kind, caring strike teams like Albuquerque did in New Mexico that go out and it's basically, you know, you use you use the legal violation as an excuse to engage with that person and say, okay, right. I'm bringing you in, but what do you need? What do you need? And then you help them. And we don't need police to do that, but it's got to be an arrest for it to have legal significance and to get around Boise. It's got to be an arrest. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, as you noted, today is election day, and this is kind of an interesting year. Uh, we're having a lot of turnover in the assembly and the Senate up here in the state. Uh, and, you know, we have a brewing, a kind of a, a leadership battle and kind of, you know, you've been in, in this scenario before you kind of were there when this big class of 2012 came in and, and changed things. And, you know, there was a leadership change kind of, how are you kind of seeing, you know, things playing out leadership wise and kind of this new incoming class kind of figuring things out? Great question. So in my brief seven years up there, I was part of three speakership battles. Um, wow. Two actually occurred when I was there and one had just occurred when I got sworn in. And I'll tell you an anecdote that is mind boggling, but it's relevant because it's the exact thing that's going on now. When I was sworn in, um, John Perez had just taken over the speakership. He had a really tough battle with Kevin DeLeon. And the, the animosity between the factions was pretty similar to what I am told is going on right now between the different factions. The mood on the floor was tense. I mean, for a long time, you know, there were bills that were bills that suffered because there was a perception that they were put forth by one faction or another. But it got so bad on the floor during my early days there that I remember vividly that members of the faction had these spies on the floor and they would sort of look around to see who. And by the way, this was after a speakership battle was done. But they would they were so paranoid about a hostile takeover or some kind of punishment of the losing faction that the spies would sort of take note about who you were talking with. Right. They would see right. like who you were huddling with. And so, you know, it's like if if I or several of the new members or, you know, the people who are perceived as undecided or, or fence sitters were even just talking, you know, talking about the weather or the Dodgers with members of the other faction, you would hear about it. They would be like, why were you talking with so and so? Right. And I'm told it is that tense right now. Um, the other thing is, I mean, you know me, I uh, love making predictions and I like to brag right. my predictions are accurate. 
But I'll tell you on this, I do not have a good read and I'll tell you why. Um, on just about every issue that has occurred since I left office, doesn't matter how big or how small, I can get a genuine read on it. And that's because members talk to, to former members the same way they talk to current members. There, there's a certain, whatever you want to call it, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a right. fraternity, a sorority. You know, they'll tell you what happened in caucus. They'll tell you if a bill's going to go down. They'll tell you about amendments before it happens. On this, it's amazing. I get nothing but spin. It's the same thing that lobbyists are getting. Oh, we've got it. Oh, no, we've got it. Right. Right. I get nothing but spin. I talk to a Rendon supporter. They're like, oh, he's going to be there forever and he's going to name a successor. I talk to a Reba supporter. Oh, it's done. It's going to happen this week. Right. It's nothing but spin. And so I'm not getting a good read on this. Um, but I do expect that there will be some fireworks at the caucus uh, later this week. And uh, then we'll see what happens in December when they come back. Okay. So like we're, we're getting election results today, you know, they're out there, I guess, supporting various candidates. Do you see, I guess, today's election results kind of, you know, playing into to what happens December 5th? Yeah, I do. I mean, um, you know, with so many new members coming in, it's impossible for them not to have an effect on the speakership battle. Um, you know, and you're seeing something that last occurred during the great Berman, Willie Brown, you know, right. era, um, which is, you know, now that the speakership is a more long duration position and someone's going to, you know, they're going to be there for longer than two years, which they were in my tenure. Um, people are fighting for it with, uh, with, I guess, a concomitant level of intensity. And that involves raising tons of money and supporting candidates. And uh, so, yeah, there's uh, the balance of power could absolutely be affected depending on who wins these, these few close seats or the seats that are in question today. You know, it's interesting. It seems like, especially in 2012, it seemed like every new member wanted to be speaker eventually. And it seems like every assembly member wants to be speaker. Um, why is that? Why, why do all assembly members really want, want to go after the speakership and why are there so many different, uh, you know, folks always looking to have that position? Well, I think you're selling them short. I think most politicians wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, good morning, Mr. President, <laughs> which is ridiculous, right? I mean, I, by the way, for the record, never was that guy. I mean, um, I think one of the keys in politics is knowing your limits. Um, I, you know, for example, with me, I was one of the rare assembly members who didn't want to be um, speaker. And that was because I had my kids with me when I was up in Sacramento. I mean, I knew I couldn't put in the socializing hours that every other, that everybody else could. I knew that I couldn't press the flesh and hang out with my colleagues as much. And I knew I right. couldn't, you know, get to know the names of their dogs and cats and things like that. And that's what it takes to become speaker. It's a popularity contest, but you're right. I mean, there are vast quantities of speaker of uh, assembly members who think that they're uh, speakership material. The reality is very few are. And uh, they just don't know it yet. But uh, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if um, there are, you know, five or six people credibly waiting in the wings who hope that this thing will degenerate and that they can run up the middle. It's happened before, too, as you know. So um, right. it's fascinating. But but I'll tell you an interesting corollary to that is the members who know that they're not going to be speaker or the members who just, you know, don't really think about things too much. They still do get get up in the morning and they say, good morning, Mr. Appropriations Chair in the mirror, right? I mean, right. you have a whole lot of people who really want to be approached chair, budget chair, you know, key positions in leadership. And I think that has been one of the fascinating things in this battle is that so many of the people who would get these positions kind of leaked it. And that's really difficult because if you're trying to get a speaker elected, in many ways, that speaker candidate needs to tease all members of the Democratic caucus. Right. Every single one of them needs to think that they're going to be the next chair of appropriations, or the next budget chair. And when it's so apparent who it might be, 
kind of hurts your candidate. So that's another situation that I think has marked this race that is unique from others. Yeah. Is it, you know, so we have all these new members coming in. You were in this situation where you were the kind of the veteran, the elder statesman, and you had this flush of new members come in. What What is your advice to, to new members who are kind of coming into this kind of tense situation? So my advice, I can't take credit for. It came from, uh, came to me from Chuck Calderon, and it came to Chuck from Richard Alatori. So you're going way back to like the late 70s where this advice came. So Chuck Calderon got elected. Richard Alatori at the time, they were they were part of a very tiny Latino caucus. And uh, Chuck went to Richard and said, hey, I need some advice. How, what do I do? And uh, Richard Alatori said, I've got, my advice could be summed up with uh, with one phrase. Shut the hell up. He didn't say hell. Right. He, he used another word that I don't want to say. But uh, he goes, that's the best advice that I can give you. So Chuck listened and for, you know, for six months, he didn't say anything, didn't say much. He just listened, kind of learned things. But then one of his bills came up and it was not a bill that he authored, but it was a bill that as a lawyer, Chuck Calderon had done a 50 state research memo on. He was one of the foremost experts in the world on this topic. It comes up for a vote. It's on the first call. The floor splits, you know, 38 to 38 with a bunch of members laying off. And so Chuck is like, wow, like, you know, I'm the foremost expert in the world on this. So when it comes up for the, the second vote, throws up his microphone, he gives an impassioned five-minute speech on the ins and outs and the intricacies and the nuances of the bill, puts the bill up for a vote again, 38-38. <laughs> and Richard Alatory just walks by him and says, shut the hell up. <laughs> and, uh, and the point is, I mean, as you know, right, it's like speeches, floor speeches very rarely change a vote, Right. right. And these are the, some of the little things that people don't know, but you can observe if you listen and you shut up, right? And it's the old, it's the old um, LBJ thing, which is I never learned anything with my mouth open, right? And so the best advice that I had was, I mean, just the first year, just shut up and listen. Yeah, you know, we, we kind of had this kind of interesting thing where, you know, we had this kind of, you know, speakership fight, right, in the middle of the year. And, you know, lines were drawn and, you know, they, you know, went into their room and kind of came out and played nice. Uh, but, you know, these last, you know, few months, you know, we've all kind of been sitting on pins and needles seeing what, what happens kind of as a, as a former member who's kind of, you know, been in these situations before, how does, how does a speaker, you know, check his votes and, you know, how does, how does he go around and kind of rise to power? How does that happen? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a lot of dinners and a lot of, um, you know, it's something, frankly, that I was never that good at. Um, you know, a lot of the battle for speakership is essentially a popularity contest, and it is not rational. It is emotional. So, yes, while there are people who will make a decision based on pure calculus, I want to be chairman of utility or chair of utilities, and he or she has indicated that I will get it or has has flirted with me that I will get it, and I know that if I'm an early supporter, I'll get it. Okay, yeah, there's some of that. But the reality is most of it is really just who you like. It's right. it's whose management style you like, who's acceptable, who you think might empower you, um, who you get along with, who you feel close to. There are people who you know were huge supporters of the three speakers that I served with, uh, John Perez, Tony Atkins, and Anthony Rendon, who hated their politics, disagreed with their districts most of the time because there were tensions with water or whatever. Um, absolutely just did not compare to them philosophically, but they love them as people, right? 
They, they really like them as a person. And so they were tremendously loyal. And there's examples of that right now, of course. Um, you know, there's still some some members of, of the legislature who are very, very loyal, just, you know, sort of odd couples, right? And right. so a lot of it is personal. And it's putting in the time, going to the dinners and going to lunches and visiting districts. Interesting. Uh, you know, I we're, we're having this interesting dynamic. As you said, we haven't seen this since the Berman Willie Brown days where kind of Republicans came into the mix to pick who's the next speaker. What do you see in that kind of sense? Do you see the Republicans getting engaged and maybe tipping the scales one way or another on this issue? Yeah, you know, it has been talked about, you know, um, certainly it's something that, you know, um, you could see something happen if the voting caucus for some reason is inconclusive. And then, you know, the challenging faction takes it to the floor, you know, on December 5. The only issue with something like that is that if you are a savvy Republican leader, and I believe James Gallagher is very savvy, um, you're going to demand certain things. Uh, you might demand a couple chairmanships. You might demand a couple things in the budget or a couple things. And the challenge has always been, how do you, as a speakership candidate, as an ambitious person who wants to do it with the Republicans, give these things away and then yet placate all the Democrats when they learn what you gave away, right? Um, it's not like, you know, the old days where the chamber was split 42-38 and you had right. to govern each other. Uh, now it's like, you know, every chair that you're giving away, you're you're taking out of a Democratic mouth to feed. So I think it's hard. Would it be unprecedented? Of course, as you know, the answer is no. Um, but, uh, you know, if the bad feelings get really, really bad, who knows? Maybe they could get it with a couple more with a couple of Republican votes. No, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting, uh, I guess, month here to see uh, what happens on December 5th. But, uh, you know, you mentioned like, at, later this week that, you know, they'll start caucusing and start kind of figuring this out. Uh, you know, how is that going to take shape? And, you know, are, are the members going to know before December 5th? Are we going to start hearing something kind of rumors and things like that soon? You know, that's a great question. And that's one that is dominating my, uh, my discussions this week with members and with with a lot of lobbyists and stuff. And that is. Um, you know, the, the legislature has always been broken up into, you know, the, the true inner circle, the true core group of leadership for whatever faction. And then there are, you know, the, the, the bit players or the lieutenants in the second degree. But there's also a large group of people in both chambers that pejoratively could be considered the people who are less engaged, maybe because they just don't care or their right. personality or they're busy. Some people could call them the sheep, right? They are the sheep or they are, you know, in a good case of the bulls that stampede, but they tend to be the last movers. I believe personally that, that you know, had the speakership battle gone down more like the first two cohorts just th threw up their microphones and were like, well, this is great. It's a done deal. And today's a transition. Like the people who are out of loop might just be like, oh, okay, are we voting on this? Right. You know, like, and there's still a little bit of that that could happen. I mean, it is so rare that the rank and file are in on the key decisions. I mean, I was part of leadership for, you know, six of my seven years that I was up there. And I can tell you that, you know, a lot of the big budget decisions, stuff like that, I learned about on the floor with everybody else. And when people got up and were like, all right, well, this is the greatest deal. And we've made the deal with the governor, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, All right, I guess I'm going to vote for it, right? right. And, and, you know, and there's always those speeches, right? And so I believe that some of that could happen, right? Because it is precisely those cohorts, that last cohort, that are the fence sitters. They are the people who have told both parties, well, I, I'm in favor of a turnover right. as long as it's not hostile, you know? And it's like, all right, well, you know, this is the time where I think the 
perspective of momentum can decide a speakership race. That's what I think is so fascinating because, you know, anyone who's dealt with a politician, it's hard to get an answer out of them, right? So, you know, they could tell both sides yes. And kind of a lot <laughs> yep. of people are saying that Rivas thought he had the 41 votes when he when he made this move back in, you know, May. He thought he had 41. Yep. And, you know, it was to, to surprise he didn't when yep. push came to shove. So always fascinating. Uh, you know, Mike, we had you on about a year ago. Uh, it was, I think Bitcoin was at its high. It was, it was 60 some thousand dollars. Uh, and since then it has a precipitous fall, uh, roughly around 19,000 as, as we're, we're talking today. Uh, we had, uh, some big news out in the crypto world about exchanges and things like that failing, uh, kind of what, what are you seeing in the, the crypto world? And, you know, is it a Ponzi and, you know, think, you think there needs to be more regulation on this stuff? Yeah, good question. So I don't remember what Bitcoin was when you had me on last, it was quite high. And I think it was before it rose to its high of 60, I think it was at about 50,000. And I said, well, it's going to hit 100 and then it's going to go down significantly. I was wrong. It never hit 100. It got up to 61, 62. Um, totally wrong. Totally flubbed that one. Um, I got the second part right. It did go down precipitously. And that's Bitcoin. Um, I think Bitcoin's always going to have a role. I think there's an element of younger generations that don't want the hassle of owning physical gold or other things with enforced scarcity. And so you can imagine a world where there's always a role for Bitcoin and maybe two or three other coins. Um, there's always going to be one that is the preferred transaction for secrecy. For a while, that was Monero. Um, there's always going to be one that that um, assists in programming and uh, you know DeFi transactions, and that's probably always going to be Ether or Ethereum. But the proliferation of all the other coins, I mean, there are thousands of them and they each have a case to make. And it's, you know, in my book, it's so much nonsense. And right. those are just Ponzi schemes. They rely on the greater fool. They rely on somebody buying the coin that uh, in many cases doesn't have a use. And I think that, you know, when history is told, it'll be like so many other manias. People will be like, why? Well, people were buying, what? They were just buying some, they're they giving money for a few things of computer code that had no use, like what, right? I think people look back and say, you know, why, why did that happen? So uh, look, I tell people crypto is going to have a role in the future. It's too established not to, but choose wisely, you know, choose two or three coins and maybe buy those, but the, the elaborate ones that are on the, you know, on the fringe of things and we all know what those are. No, I don't see them ever having a role. And, uh, and, you know, and I also think, I also think, you know, Okay, so here's here's something that I think could happen at some point. If you take the 10 or 20 companies that genuinely, genuinely create the most desirable goods, uh, maybe it's Nike, uh, Louis Vuitton. We all know these companies, right. um, ones that people would wait in line for and everything like that. Now, if they created a coin and if they said you can only buy the latest Nike shoe by not giving us U.S. dollars, but by giving us our coin. Uh, yeah, that's something that has not yet happened. And I think it would result in these coins being traded very wildly because they are for things that have cult status. But why would a company sort of lose control of stuff? Right now, they know if they want to sell a shoe at $120 and it's really in demand, they can sell it at $200. But if they just sell a coin at $20 and then people bid it up for another $100, they're not really arguably making that profit. So I mean, for me, it's hard to see how too many of these are going to be more than glorified coupons when all is said and done. That's interesting. Some of them are going to be, you know, glorified Ponzi schemes, and that's the most. Right. Memo to Bob Chapek, the, the Disney coin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's like, 
I'm trying to think of the, the crazy manias, like, you know, there's Beanie Babies when I was really young. Um, there was Tickle Me Elmo dolls. You remember some, like sometimes right. it's like these, these cult Christmas toys. Or just like, you know, like pets.com. I just I remember like just website right. domains, right? Yep. Yeah. Total mania. That's just, it's just interesting. And kind of, you know, just, I guess, foretelling it, you know, and your next prediction is, you know, here we are at housing. We have all-time housing prices. Uh, we have seven, 8% mortgage rates. It seems it's going to go higher and higher for at least another couple months. Uh, what do you see with kind of housing in the economy uh, coming in the next, I guess, six months to a year? Sure. So for me, that's a little easier than other things. I think by Super Bowl Sunday, you're going to see horrible manifestations of pain in the housing market. Uh, today, something came out that consumer sentiment with respect to housing prices is the lowest it's ever been. Sometimes that indicates that things are going to turn around. But the reality is, you know, with, with mortgage rates at, you know, 7.75, 8% if you're buying multifamily, um, they're, first of all, they're probably going to continue to go up. Um, the American system of government and the American people, we always overreact. We don't just react, we overreact. Right. And so it's like, ah, you know, let's make interest rates so low that they're negative. You know, the real, right. the real yield is less than zero. Okay. And it's like, oh my God, is that inflation? We got to make it really high. I mean, you can imagine a world where interest rates hit close to 10%, right? And certainly in my lifetime, when I was very, very young, um, you know, my parents' mortgage was 14%, right? So that's going to drastically change affordability and house prices. And then, you know, we're entering a period where there's likely to be recession and people are feeling the pain of inflation and, you know, a slowing down economy. And then on top of that is very few people buy a home during um, Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays, New Year. I always say, to, so I think, you know, we'll have probably three months of super high rates, um, three months, four months of super high rates, four months of inventory piling up, four months of desperate sellers. People say, well, they don't have to sell. Uh, they're, they're, in many ways, this is different from the last the last bust because people don't have to sell. It's not like the separate, well, yeah, people don't have to sell, but people right. continue to die, people continue to move, people continue to get new jobs, people continue to need bigger homes, people are going to continue to sell. And that inventory is going to sit on the market until Super Bowl Sunday. And the interest rates are going to be what they are at least until Super Bowl Sunday. So, you know, come February, I think there's going to be a reckoning. And I think some of the sellers are going to stop expecting 2021 prices. Right. And I think there are going to be some bargains again, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Definitely. And I guess, you know, I, I know you got a hard stop coming up, but, you know, being election day, kind of what kind of election day things do you think you're going to see today? And you think we're going to be in for any surprises? Yeah, I mean, I think the much reported red wave is a thing, and I think it's going to start in, you know, Rhode Island and Maine, and it's going to come across the country, and then it's going to crash and start receding right around San Bernardino, and it's not going to, the red wave is not going to get Los Angeles wet. Um, I think we're going to see a really big red wave in most of the country. It's going to result in Republicans getting control of the House and the Senate, but I don't think it's going to affect things in Los Angeles. Um, your viewers will certainly know this reference. I want to stress something that happened here in the June primary. Gil Cedillo, somebody I served with, somebody who was in the legislature for quite some time, somebody who regularly got out of all 120 members of the legislature, he was the most progressive. Gil Cedillo was taken out. He was primaried in Los Angeles for being too centrist. Let that sink in. This is Los Angeles. Uh, San Francisco, a city that is known for being a progressive bastion. San Francisco recalled its district attorney in the June election. Uh, Los Angeles, it didn't even qualify for the ballot. Uh, 
right? right? So Los Angeles has really bucked the trend. So a lot of people down here are watching the mayor's race. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Mr. Crusoe won, but I'll tell you that you know, in Los Angeles, Los Angeles has generally bucked the, uh, the centrist wave that is going across around the country. But I do think with the national results coming in, we will see um, control of Congress shifting. Yeah. And what do you see happening with the, the city council? Do you think, you know, KDL and Cedillo kind of waited out and, you know, new news comes and people forget or you think, you know, they're going to be forced to, to resign? I mean, it's certainly what, you know, Kevin DeLeon appears to be banking on. Uh, Cito's term is done. You know, his term is done. He's just, let's be real. I think he's just running down the last seconds on his clock and uh, and uh, not resigning out of a mix of stubbornness and a, a desire to get a paycheck. Right. Kevin, you know, desperately wants to uh, to put this behind him. I don't know that that's possible. Yes, Americans have a short attention span. Yes, uh, people do forget stuff. And there, there are a lot of new political uh, headlines and news. Um, but I think the effort to recall him is real. Um, my understanding is they've already raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. Recalls are not easy. Um, they're not easy to win. They're not easy to qualify. Um, but a professional recall, given these circumstances, I think is likely to succeed. So I think it's going to be mighty tough for him. Uh, the real question really, of course, is, you know, these tapes were awful. I mean, they they sort of curdled the spine and anybody who listened to them really thought that they were um, just really low points in Los Angeles politics. Um, but I think we there's two things that we haven't asked. First is, who is spinning it to their advantage? I've heard all sorts of conspiracy theories, um, not so much as to who released it, but who has been better with reacting uh, for raw political power. And, uh, you know, I think so far the left of center groups in Los Angeles have used this better to their advantage. But the more important question, the one that I care about most is, um, is asking ourselves, how did this happen? What were the circumstances that uh, led to certain politicians feeling comfortable um, thinking that they only had to care about one group of people? Um, what has our society done to that? Have we told people that it's okay to do that? Have we somehow blessed this? Have we somehow tolerated it um, with all the silos and all the different bubbles that we have and all the different labels we attach in our society? Has that contributed to this? I think after some soul searching, the hard answer is yes. And I think we need to fight that. Uh, we, we need to make sure that people realize that anything you get done in this modern world that's worth doing, you got to put together a faction. You need a coalition. And uh, it's not just my group and my people. It's the Los Angeles, or in this case, the Angelinos. It's the Californians and it's the American people. That's who we are. And I think that's a lesson that has to be taught because I don't want to see any more tapes like this come out. No, no, definitely. Well put. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us. Always great having you and uh, always appreciate what you have to say and can't wait to uh, check back on your predictions in uh, six months. <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. We'll be <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> thanks for awesome, having me. Mike. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good one. 